0: The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 17 this evening. The word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, but the Lord your God is giving you you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans. We'll be reading through verse 13 this evening. The word of our God. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. Please keep your place here in Romans chapter 7, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Tonight's sermon has one simple and direct point. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. That's it. As you read through Paul's explanation of how the Christian is supposed to relate to the law of God, the chief contribution of these verses is this one plain truth. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. But in teaching us this truth, the Apostle Paul also goes on to explain how the law functions in our lives. In particular, he focuses on what theologians call the first use of the law, and that is the law exposing our sinfulness to ourselves to cause us to despair of trusting in ourselves so that we will flee to Jesus Christ. This is both an important and an eminently practical truth for us to get into our minds and into our hearts. We are going to look at tonight's passage under three questions. Why would anyone think that the law was bad? Why would anyone think that they could keep the law and therefore demonstrate that they were good and worthy of life with God? And how does the law of God drive us to Jesus Christ? So first, why would anybody think that the law of God is bad? Paul begins by asking, what then shall we say? But the law is sin? So that's the first question we need to grapple with. And on the surface, it sounds like kind of a crazy idea. How could the law of God be sin? Why would anybody think about the law of God as somehow being a bad thing? But If we look back up just a bit to verses 1 through 6 of this chapter, we see that God's people were never intended to be married to the law. We were and we are supposed to be married betrothed to the Lord himself. And yet some people, religious people, fell so in love with the law that they thought that they were actually achieving something by as though it were being married to the law without any regard to really being married to the Lord Himself. This wrong headed misuse of the law of God seeks to use the law as a way of either establishing or manifesting the person's own righteousness. Paul speaks of that abuse of the law in terms of being married to the law. Now, beloved, it should be pretty obvious to us. If we are married to the law, we are married to the wrong spouse. We were and we are supposed to be married to God himself. In fact, if you act as though you're married to the law, you are in fact committing adultery with the law in your unfaithfulness to God. Uh, So, one obvious answer to the question, why would anyone think that the law is bad, is simply this. What do you think of someone who runs off with one of your best friends? You know, your friend is married. They run off with someone, you don't even really know that person very well, but you're going to think of that person as being fundamentally a bad person. You know, it's our human nature to blame it on them rather than our friends. And certainly to blame it on someone else rather than on ourselves. And so we assume that that person seduced our friend away from loyalty. From covenant fidelity to their wife or to their husband. And some might imagine that that's what the law has done. But the law is a seductress that has seduced our friends, our neighbors, away from their fidelity to the living God. It's also worth remembering that if we take what Paul has already said earlier in Romans out of context, admittedly, uh, it could easily seem as though Paul were teaching that the law of God was bad or at best useless. For example, Paul has already told us that the law discloses sin without curing it. He does that in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 20. That performance of the law is not the basis of salvation, in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 30. And that the law brings wrath, Romans chapter 4, verse 15. So is that what the law of God is? At best, useless, and at worst, an evil seductress who is luring us away from the Lord. Is the law sin? And the Apostle Paul is emphatic in his response. By no means. Perish the thought. Don't even consider such an outrageous and blasphemous idea. Picking up in the middle of verse 7. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, we actually have to slow down a bit here and pay attention to what the words mean. Um, That sounds like a simple thing to do, but, you know, even in English, words don't have one meaning. They have a range of meaning. And so if you're listening to somebody and they mean this use of the word, and you're imagining it has this other use over here, you're going to fundamentally misunderstand them. And that's the same thing when we read the Bible. So sometimes we have to be careful to make sure we understand what the words mean in the author's own context. So the first question is this, and it may seem surprising. What does the Apostle Paul mean by the personal pronoun I in I would not have known sin? Now that, that might seem to be such a simple question uh, that you could not even imagine how much ink has been spilt by theologians over that question in Romans chapter 7, on whether or not I refers to the Apostle Paul himself, it refers to Jews uh, in general, it refers to Paul before he was converted, and so on. There's an astonishing amount of ink has been spilled over this question. And the good news for you is you do not have to get a PhD in New Testament to get the basic idea of what Paul is saying here. You might need a little bit of help from those who've studied at that level, but it's actually not that complicated. Just two points... First, as one New Testament scholar rightly points out, people in the ancient world often wrote in the first-person singular, that is, using the word I, when they meant to include other people. Now, we do this in English as well, but we usually do it with the first-person plural. So we might say we when we mean people in general or some broader group of people rather than just those who happen to be in this room right now. Uh, The truth, though, is in Greek, that was much, much more common, and they also did it with simply the first-person singular pronoun. And I think this consequence is actually pretty obvious, even if you've never read ancient rhetoric or ever studied Greek. Paul's goal is not to give an autobiographical point that is unique to himself. He's using the personal pronoun, and he expects his readers in Rome are all going to say, Oh, yeah, me too. Right, Not just Paul, but me too. I'm included in this. And if they don't get it right away, as they mature in their faith, they're going to say, oh yes, now I see. That wasn't just about Paul. That was about my experience as well. But second, and please don't embrace the first point while missing the second. Um, some well-known scholars have actually done that. But part of the reason why the Apostle Paul says, I is because he's personally involved in this struggle. Paul is not a healthy physician diagnosing sick people from a distance, as though he's in an entirely different category. Right? Paul could have talked about you or them or the Jews, but he uses the word I because he is personally involved in the realities that he is describing. When Paul writes, I would not have known sin... For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. He is declaring that this is his own personal relationship with the law and with sin. In fact, as you read through Romans chapter 7, you see that Paul is personally and passionately involved in what is going on. This is a great wrestling for Paul. He comes to the end of the chapter and he says, oh wretched man that I am. He understood that struggle and he understood the release from that struggle in Jesus Christ who has delivered him from that body of death. The second word that we need to make sure we understand correctly is the word known. Known. What does Paul mean when he writes if it had not been for the law I would not have known sin well the words for known both in the old testament in hebrew and the new testament in greek frequently involve an experiential aspect to them they are not simply intellectual content and this is obvious if you just think of a couple verses Uh, for example we're told that adam knew eve his wife and she conceived now, the Bible is not saying that Adam discovered some interesting things about Eve. You know, hi, I recognize you. And voila, Eve said, now I'm pregnant. No, it was much more experiential and intimate than that. Or consider the prophet Amos. Uh, Amos in Amos 3.2 uh, says this, or the Lord tells Israel this, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, the Lord is not saying, I don't know about these other nations. The Lord knows all the other nations exhaustively. But the word known means something like, you alone have I set my love on in this special way. So that is, the word know and known in the Bible, while it can sometimes merely be cognitive, often has an experiential and even an intimate sense. And it frequently has the idea of some sort of commitment of love as well. Is that what Paul means in Romans 7? Is Paul saying, I was going happily through life without having the experience of committing sin, but when the law came into my life, I began to sin? Was Paul's sinful nature completely asleep until the law came along and woke it up? Oddly, at least oddly to me, A fair number of pastors seem to think that's what Paul has in mind. And some of those pastors and theologians have written commentaries where they suggest this. But that can't possibly be what Paul has in mind. Um, Just think back to what he's written earlier in Romans. In Romans 2.12, Paul writes this. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. See, Paul is very straightforward that people, in fact, do sin without the law and they are held guilty for their sin. They, in fact, will perish without the law. And in Romans 5, verse 13, Paul writes this, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Well, if sin is in the world before the law is given, you don't need the law in order to sin. Uh, We're going to come back to chapter 5 of Romans in just a moment. But what these two verses make clear is that people were bad before they had the law. The law doesn't make us bad. The law exposes the fact that we are bad. I mean, after all, death reigned in the world. For the whole period between when Adam and Eve transgressed a specific command, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the giving of the Torah through Moses. If Paul was saying that that was true of those who didn't even have access to the law, and he is, surely he is not saying that apart from the law, he or anyone else, other than Jesus, was without sin. So what is Paul saying? This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that The law of God causes us to experience our own corruption in a fresh light. On the one hand, it does reveal just how bad we are. Uh, Just as you don't see the dust and chipped paint in a dark room when the lights are turned off, but when they are turned on, we suddenly get to see all the things that we now need to clean or fix. So it is with the law of God. When the law of God shines its floodlights into our lives we suddenly become intimately aware of our numerous deficiencies. The law of God reveals both our actions and the thoughts and desires of our heart as being opposed to the king of kings. That's important to get. The law of God does not simply show that you're not perfect. It does not simply show that you should have scaled the mountain in a slightly different way. The law of God reveals that we are actually by nature opposed to God's purposes. And in particular opposed to bowing the knee and declaring that he has a right to tell us what to do. Sometimes people suggest that the commandments multiply sin by actually making us behave worse than we did before the law. And perhaps that's true on some occasions for some people. But I think it's pretty clear that's not what Paul has in mind. Uh, for one thing, we just talk about the second use of the law just in brief this morning in adult Sunday school class, but one of the purposes of the law in civil society is it actually restrains sin because people are concerned about breaking laws that they might receive punishment for, either civil or ecclesiastical, or they simply don't want to be shamed and to be known as those who are transgressors of the law. So I, I don't really think that's what Paul was driving at at all. Critically, Paul isn't suggesting that everybody would live in faithful monogamous marriages if it wasn't for the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, before the law was given, everyone just lived faithfully. One man, one woman, totally faithful to each other, loving each other, committed to each other. And then God gave the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and suddenly people are committing adultery. That is not the case. In fact, apart from the law against adultery, the problem would almost certainly be even bigger. Furthermore, I don't think that Paul's choice of covetousness is an arbitrary illustration of his broader point. For one of the chief things the law of God does with sinners is that it illumines the evil, not simply of our actions, but of our hearts. And here's the honest truth. Apart from the law of God, almost nobody thinks that covetousness is bad. Uh, you know, if you go around and, well, you hear this all the time. You have to go around looking for it. It's going to come looking for you. You're going to regularly hear people say things to the effect, if no one else gets hurt, no big deal. Right? So as long as it's inside of you, who cares? Nobody imagines in our society, broadly speaking, apart from Christians, that your desire for things you don't have is bad. In fact, I want to suggest that most people in our culture who are not Christians, when they are faced with the reality that they covet things, they place the problem in an entirely different location. Instead of saying, it's bad that I'm desiring things that I don't have, that I'm unsatisfied with God, I'm seeking to satisfy that that God-shaped hole in my heart with things and experiences and credits to myself, instead of saying that, they say this, The real problem is my desires aren't being satisfied. Isn't that what it is? Right? The problem isn't I have bad desires. The problem is my desires aren't being satisfied. Our culture does not naturally start by assuming that covetousness is wicked. And please notice that Paul was talking about something much deeper than the law of God revealing that we have some bad desires. The law reveals that left to ourselves, we are idolaters. That's a critical thing to see. We are people who want things that God hasn't given to us. We resent that we don't have those things. And Figuratively speaking, each of our sins are individual acts of spitting in the eye of God and saying not your will but my will be done uh, that may sound really dark but that's the plain reality but the law of god lays before us now thanks be to god the lord doesn't leave us to ourselves right that's the good news if we were left to ourselves this would be a horrible thing that god is exposing our sin all it would do was make clear i'm really bad now what But the Lord has not left us to ourselves. And one of the ways the Lord acts to turn us from our own corruption is by giving us his law and illuminating it through his Holy Spirit to our minds and to our hearts so that we will discover the extreme sinfulness of sin not only out there in the world, but in here in each of our hearts. So the law of God empowered by the Spirit of God is grabbing a hold of us as we happily go on our own selfish ways and it is awakening us to the reality that we have a problem. And that problem is in relationship to the holy God before whom we will all give an account. Once we understand these things, verses 8 and 9 fall readily into place. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now some of the very best New Testament commentators want to make a link here between what Paul is saying and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And Superficially, that's very attractive. Remember, Adam and Eve were alive in the Garden of Eden, and then they had the commandment. Now, the commandment didn't tempt them to break it. Satan used the commandment to tempt them to break it. But Satan does use the law of God in this way. They transgress the commandment, and they die. I mean, not immediately. They have a covenantal death. But eventually, they are under the power of death. So superficially, that's a pretty attractive reading to say, Paul was saying, we're basically doing the same thing. Adam and Eve had the law, they transgressed it, they died, and me in my own life, I was happily going along in my sin, as it were, or going along in my life, and the law came along, awakened by sin, I transgressed it, and I, too, die. Is that what Paul is getting at? Well, actually, no, it is not. The superficial attractiveness of this comparison... Has blinded these normally fine scholars to the obvious fact that Adam and Eve were objectively innocent before they transgressed the law and they possessed genuine life with God. Paul was not saying that was him before the law. Paul was saying before the law, I was in fact dead in my sins. All I could do is go back and read the beginning of the book. Right? We were all dead in our sins before we had the experience of being born again by God's Holy Spirit. I was dead in my sins, but I didn't realize it. Right? By contrast, in verses 8 and 9, Paul is not describing us from God's point of view, as though we really were truly alive and without sin in the world. He is describing us from the standpoint of our own blind self-perception. We were going through life as though we were alive. Here's where it might be helpful to recall Romans chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 once again. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. For many of those people, the Lord handed them over to one of the worst things that can happen to us in this world. He gave them over to their own desires. Yes, they had his general revelation through nature, which taught them truths about right and wrong, and that they had a creator to whom they were obligated to worship. But having seared their consciences... Through sin, of course. Many of them undoubtedly went through life entirely untroubled by their own covetousness. Uh, I can't prove that, but I think that's just one of those obvious ramifications. Apart from God working in their lives, once their consciences are calloused, and with nobody saying, thou shalt not covet, they would have gone through their lives entirely untroubled by their own covetousness. Paul, painting with a broad brush, is saying that that is generally true of all of us. Until the Lord graciously applies his perfect law to our hearts to reveal us as sinners in the hands of an angry God. See, the law didn't make us wicked. Nor did the law bring us from a state of life with God to either spiritual or physical death. What the law of God did was remove our blindness so that in its light, we could see ourselves for how we truly are. And yet, there was a surprising twist in the story. What Paul was teaching isn't the only true of those who don't physically possess the law of God. The shocking thing is that the very people to whom the law was entrusted frequently had the very same problem. It was, after all, primarily the Jewish people whom Paul was referring to in the first six verses of this chapter when he wrote that they were wrongly married to the law. Beloved, the Gentiles weren't married to the law. And of course, that's still true in our own day. Uh, The people that get married to the law in our own day are either going to synagogues or they're going to churches, right? Pagans don't marry the law of God. And so this problem wasn't simply a problem out there. It was a problem within the covenant community. How could that be? Why would anyone think that they could keep the law and therefore demonstrate that they are good and worthy of life with God? Paul, of course, understood how this could be from his own personal experience. Verses 10 and 11. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me now paul's one of the smartest people who's ever lived i mean i i don't you have to be a christian to believe that you just read what he wrote you see what he did paul is brilliant how could this brilliant pharisee ever have gotten so wrong about his relationship to the law how could he ever have imagined that the law was going to reveal that he was good rather than revealing that he was desperately wicked Remember that Paul is not simply speaking out of his own autobiography here. Why would so many Jews like Paul have imagined the same thing? The answer is that if you build your theology by cutting and pasting verses of the Bible together, rather than receiving it by faith on God's own terms, you can come up with almost any system of doctrine you want. And that's not just true for ancient Jews. See, it's quite possible, it's the sad reality, that Christians do this today with the Word of God. A verse here, a verse there, I assemble it the way I want, and you can come up with almost anything. And interestingly enough, it turns out that when people do that, they almost always assemble it in the same wrong way. They they turn the law of God into something that demonstrates that we're good people. We're we're the guys who read the Bible, we keep the Bible, we put it into practice. Aren't we the good ones? And I hear this frankly all the time in various ways from people. mentioned last week uh, more than half the funerals I've gone to in my lifetime. And these are mostly Christian funerals. Someone has said, well, you know, if Bob or Mary or Sue, whatever's not in heaven, we're all in trouble because they were such a good person. But that's totally wrong. I mean, I trust that Bob and Mary and Susan were probably in heaven because they were Christians, but they were there entirely by the grace of God, not because they were law keepers. First, let's consider two of the verses that they might have cut out of the Torah out of context. We actually know some of this from early Jewish writings. Leviticus 18.5 says this, Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. Well, that seems straightforward enough. You keep and obey the law, and therefore you live. Well, if you read the surrounding verses, you realize that's not what's going on. But but you could take it that way. And if we want to cut and paste a verse from the Lord's blessing Of obedience. Deuteronomy 28 says this. If you fully obey the Lord your God. And carefully follow all his commands that I give you today. You will be blessed in the city. And blessed in the country. So there you have it. The life of blessing is simple. You keep God's law. He blesses you for it. It's almost as though he's paying you wages. But of course that sort of cutting and pasting. And taking commands out of context is to misread them. As though God were giving moral commandments, which if you performed them to a satisfactory standard, they would lead you to being vindicated before God and blessed by him. And that is precisely how religiously minded sinners tend to twist God's law. But why wrench them out of context? Why not read them the way that God has given them to us? We want to listen carefully to hear what the Lord is teaching us from his word as an organic whole. And what do we learn if we put these verses back into the context of the Torah as a whole? For one thing, a big part of the Torah is the sacrificial system. And you know, the sacrificial system only has value for sinners. right? That's the whole point. It's a system that says, you guys are all horrible sinners, but I, your holy God, want to dwell in your midst so I've given you a way of dealing with your sin. And not that the blood of bulls and goats is going to take away sin, it's pointing forward to Christ, but it's saying you have need of deliverance, you have need of forgiveness. It's really quite astonishing that people could go through all these sacrificial rituals year after year, remembering that whole burnt offerings were offered twice a day in the temple on behalf of all the people, and think that what that pointed to was, we're really good people. Makes no sense at all. But this is precisely how religiously-minded sinners, in fact, do tend to twist the law of God. A second major aspect of the Torah that provides context, the context in which we read things like, do this and live, or do this and be blessed, is um, the ceremonial law as it relates to uncleanness. Have a Jew who took the law seriously, not all Jews probably did. Probably a lot of them, when they found out they were ceremonially unclean, hope no one else knew about it, and they just kind of went on with their life. I mean, that's human nature, and we don't read the Old Testament and see people conspicuously righteous, you know, from Moses down to uh, Jesus. That's simply not what we see. But for those who took the law seriously they would have been found to be ceremonially unclean a disturbingly large number of times in their lives. I mean, for one thing, a woman having her period meant she was ceremonially unclean. She had blood coming out. A, a man who had a discharge of semen would, a scab would. Right? All manner of things could mark you out as being ceremonially unclean. I, I mentioned this morning that Uh, Someone spitting on you would make you ceremonially unclean. That's kind of a gross image. Um, Hopefully that wouldn't happen to you too often. But the rules about ceremonial uncleanness would have made everyone in Israel ceremonially unclean many times during their lives. A person would have to be spiritually blind to observe all of that and then say, Yes, but I am basically a good person. When the ceremonial law is shouting at you, You are unclean. One of the remarkable things I mentioned around spit and blood discharges and so on is one of the things that makes people unclean in the Old Testament is anything that's supposed to be inside of you coming out. Right? Spit, blood, pus, anything. And the ceremonial law is shouting quite loudly, on the inside, you are unclean. Until we come to an astonishing exception to this rule in Jesus Christ. Jesus spits and makes mud and heals people's eyes, right? My spit is unclean. Jesus' spit is purifying. And of course, we know the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. No wonder Paul says in verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is we don't see this until the Lord changes our hearts. Paul was saying that he, along with the mass of Jews, was utterly blinded to what the law was really teaching. Um, that's actually important to see. You shouldn't imagine that just because people are experts in the law or in our own day, they go to seminary and they got seminary degrees or PhDs and they're teaching Old Testament or New Testament at some famous school or other if they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're going to get it wrong over and over and over again. And that's what was going on in Paul's own day. In fact, Calvin, who obviously loves the Apostle Paul, goes so far as to say that Paul was teaching a paradox. That before Paul's conversion, when though the law was indeed very much before his eyes, he had probably memorized huge swaths of the Old Testament before he was converted. Though the law was indeed very much before his eyes, he did not properly understand it, but imagined he was fulfilling its requirements. According to Calvin, Paul refers to himself as having been without law during the time in which he did not understand it aright. I think Calvin's correct there. Uh, Some people have taken Paul talking about being without law As though he couldn't be talking about himself because, as a Pharisee, he had the law. And Calvin's point is, he had the words, but he really didn't have the law of God because he was so blinded by his sin. One popular Christmas carol asks, Do you see what I see? I want to ask you a more pointed question Do you see what Paul sees? Do you see that the law is not a ladder to climb, but a guide for loving God and neighbor as we ought? Do you see that when you look into the law of God, what it reveals in this life is not the spotless bride of Christ? You know, the law is a mirror. When you look into the mirror of the law of God, is the reflection you see the spotless bride of Christ? And beloved, it is not apart from you being clothed in Christ's own righteousness. Instead, what that mirror shows is a person who is desperate, desperately in need of having his or her own guilt washed away, and that the law also points forward to the one who will do this very thing. In this sense, the law joins hands with John the Baptist to declare, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is a schoolmaster for us, leading us from self-sufficiency and saying, You can't. Look over there. Not only can he, but he has already done it. If so, if you get that, you too will be able to say that the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Indeed, Paul makes this point explicit in the following verse. Look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what was good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is functionally what Paul has been driving to. Instead of the law being a seductress that lures us away from our relationship with God, The law, the law reveals just how exceedingly wicked we are so that we will flee from trying to justify ourselves to the person of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an analogy from everyday life. One of the most important things that a surgeon can do for you is start with a right diagnosis. It will do you no good at all if you receive surgery on your ankle, expert surgery on your ankle, if you needed chemotherapy because you have cancer. It's not simply that the treatment is done well. You have to have the right diagnosis. The law of God empowered by the Holy Spirit leads us to make the right diagnosis of our own desperate spiritual condition. Tragically, The pulpits of America are filled with men who seem to think that they are preaching to basically good people who are just a little bit lonely or who could use a few tips on how they could have a more successful life. But beloved, if you look into the law that God has given us and you see yourself back, you're not going to be looking for a little bit of good advice. You are not going to be seeking a bit of good advice good advice in your life, what you're going to demand is good news. That God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh that he would defeat our sin in his flesh. The law of God empowered by the spirit of God wonderfully reveals for us who we are and it points us to Jesus Christ. But this is only good news for you because of who Jesus is and what he has done. As we hear when we turn the page to Romans chapter 8, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you love God's law? Have you come to the place where you can say with the Apostle Paul that the law is holy and that the commandment is holy and righteous and good? Then there's only one thing left for you to do. Love Jesus, trust Jesus, and follow Jesus. For Jesus Christ is the end, that is, he is the goal of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Amen.